Hello, everybody. My name is Michael Abib. I'm a specialist solutions architect here at AWS. And I'm super, super excited to be speaking with you about Amazon ElastiCache for, uh, uh, for Redis. So we, re we recently released a lot of really awesome features that we're going to go through uh, in today's talk. And uh, just a level set, uh, we're going to start off you know, kind of getting everybody on the same page with what Amazon ElastiCache is. Then we're going we're gonna to dive into how do you scale your Amazon ElastiCache cluster uh, with online resharding. Then we'll review you know, our security footprint with respect to uh, uh, you know, how do you set up that topology and the networking and all those uh, infrastructure associated with your cluster, as well as encryption, which is a new feature that we just recently uh, announced. And then we'll take a look at some common usage patterns that a lot of our customers are using today. And then we'll close off with uh, best practices. So year after year, we're hearing uh, increasingly from our customers this need for speed. And uh, this is really coming from virtually every workload and every vertical that you can imagine. So what customers are essentially asking for is they, they in their data platform, they want a, a fast data layer, right? And uh, this, is, uh, this need has, has developed to the point where we're no longer measuring performance in milliseconds. This is a microsecond, sub-millisecond uh, gauge. So this is really where Amazon ElastiCache fits in. Amazon ElastiCache is an in-memory key value store. We support the two most popular key value store engines, Redis and Nevcached. It's uh, fully managed, zero administration, no racking, stacking, failover that you have to worry about. And it's hardened by Amazon. And what does that mean? What it means is we have some engineers who are involved with the open source Reddit's product, and uh, they're, you know, they are constantly looking at uh, the engine and the features, and then we evaluate what our customers are asking us for, and uh, we enhance those areas that we feel uh, better serve our customers. So if you were to take a second to think about your data from a temperature gauge, uh, the hot data would be that data that you access most frequently. And if you thought about the, uh, the characteristics of that hot data, what you would want it to be is uh, the ability to support incredibly high request rates, um, very, very low latency. And that's basically where Amazon ElastiCache fits. And as uh, data volume grows and sort of the, the data starts getting warmer and colder, you'll see SSDs and you'll see other data stores sort of fit in. Now, this is not a, you know, a bit or an or operation. So if you're, you're building a data platform, essentially what you want to do is you want to think about your data access patterns and you want to utilize the different data stores and databases that make sense for that specific data, uh, data access. So Redis, quick overview, just a level set, make sure everybody here is on the same page. Redis today is the most popular key value store in the market. And the reason it is, is because it has a variety of different features. It's a Swiss army knife of uh, key value stores. It has uh, a variety of different data structures. So if you're a developer, um, a lot of these are, you know, are, uh, you know they ring a bell to you. Um, hash maps, lists, sorted sets, sets. Um, and it's very intuitive with respect to how do you use Redis. In fact, I like to think of the API as, you know, sort of genius because it's very rich in capability, but syntactically, it's very predictable and very easy to use. Other things that uh, make Redis very interesting is that it's, uh, uh, it supports HA. So you can have a master 
or a, a, a primary or multiple primaries in a clustered environment, and then you can fail over uh, in the event of a, a failed scenario. And what does that support? It gives you that added HA that you need for those critical workloads and those, those, uh, those solutions and infrastructures that you care most about. Other things uh, that's great about uh, a Redis, um, uh, it's open source, and Amazon ElastiCache uh, fully supports the open source uh, version. So from a syntactical standpoint, from a protocol, st a protocol standpoint, it's a, you know, a drop-in replacement. And uh, another cool feature is it has transaction support. So you can, uh, you can have a multi-execute uh, various uh, different commands in a, in a transaction block, uh, which simulates that uh, transactions. Um, and just like the commercials, there's always more, right? So um, other things that Redis has, it has Lewis scripts. So you can bake in business logic uh, that you can call and reference within your Redis cluster. There's geospatial uh, capabilities. Uh, so geospatial uh, supports a, uh, you know, a special assorted set that uh, supports longitude and latitude. And this is great for uh, mobile applications where maybe you're passing you know, location-based information uh, to the cloud and to Redis and you're looking for points of interest that you want to uh, serve to your end users. There's PubSub capabilities. Um, so this allows you to build chat applications and notification systems. Um, and it's just built into Redis. So there's nothing that you need to turn on. There's no additional cost. It's just there. Now, in terms of uh, ElastiCache features, um, ElastiCache offers a variety of different ways that you can deploy and monitor your Redis cluster. And a lot of these are familiar to you because we support these in other services as well. So uh, AWS CloudFormation, uh, Template Engine, where you can uh, run JSON, YAML scripts. And this is great for infrastructure as code. So you can build uh, you know, what you would want your application and Redis cluster to look like, how many shards, what node types, all those sort of details with respect to uh, your cluster. You can versionize that template and then build it whenever you need to. I use this all the time when I want to do benchmarking or performance testing, and once I'm done, I sort of uh, turn down or, or uh, uh, collapse that, uh, that stack. Other uh, capabilities is CLI, SDK, so all the operations associated to ElastiCache you have full control on uh, using the S uh, CLI and SDK. The SDK you'll use in your, uh, your applications, uh, maybe in Lambda uh, functions. Um, and in CLI, you'll have, you know, uh, through the AWS CLI tool. And then if you don't like a lot of excitement in your life, there's always the console, right? So a couple clicks, and uh, you can build a, a Redis cluster uh, that way as well. Um, from a monitoring perspective, uh, there's CloudTrail, AWS CloudTrail. And so this gives you all the, um, the, the, the log, essentially, of every um, interaction to the service, you know, when it happened, who did it, that sort of thing. Um, AWS Config, which is great to build compliance, how you want that cluster to look like. Uh, Amazon CloudWatch, which I think pairs very nicely with Redis. And so what's cool about CloudWatch is, in addition to us you know, funneling up all the Redis info um, data through CloudWatch, you also can be very proactive with respect to this. And how do you be proactive is issue an alarm, you know, set a metric that makes sense to you, issue an alarm, consume that alarm through an SNS notification, and then do something interesting, right? Maybe have uh, an operation on your cluster. I'm gonna have a, an interesting an example about this later in this presentation where we'll talk, we'll, re we'll revisit uh, that, uh, that uh, architecture. 
other things that we've done. So I mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, it's a, a fully open source compatible. Um, our engineers are, are very, um, you know, involved with the open source project. Um, but we also have some enhancements that we've built into ElastiCache. I'll review uh, some of these. So the first one is um, a background save operation. So uh, optimized swap memory. So with Redis, um, especially if you have a lot of writes happening uh, to your primary, if you were to do a, uh, say, a, a snapshot, what happens is you have the, the, the possibility of doubling your memory footprint, right? This is, this is true for uh, open source Redis. And so what that means is if you wanted to be safe and conservative, you would want to reserve 50% memory just for those background operations. So we took a look at that and we, we thought we could do better, right? So what we wanted to do is we wanted to give our customers the ability to use more uh, memory without, you know, putting them in a situation where uh, it would, uh, you know, sort of um, um, create a possible problem, right? So what we did is we, um, we, we changed the algorithm with respect to how much memory you have available in your cluster. And if we detect you have less memory to do that fork-based operation, we'll do a forkless operation, which is essentially a timer task job that will, you know, do this uh, uh, background snapshot in a more uh, efficient way. The second uh, feature that we did uh, with, with open source Redis, um, if you're experiencing a lot of writes to your primary, um, and your primary, say, is uh, under a lot of pressure, maybe memory is very low, there's the possibility that your replicas might fall out of sync. And that's not a, that's not a good scenario. Uh, so what we did here is to protect your primary to, uh, against failures and also uh, to uh, reduce the possibility that your replicas are, you know, out of sync, we'll throttle some of those writes. Um, they'll still execute successfully. We'll just slow them down just to make sure everything here is consistent. And again, this is only in a, in a scenario where you're, you're doomed for failure. Um, so we're, we're sort of mitigating that possibility. And then the, uh, the other one, uh, which we actually contributed to open source, it's in Redis 4 uh, today, uh, um, is, uh, is, is, uh, is referred to as PSYNC2 um, uh, in the open source uh, Redis. And essentially what it is, is assume you have a primary and multiple replicas. If that primary fails, um, an election takes place where one of your replicas becomes the new primary. Uh, with open source Redis prior to Redis 4, all the other uh, replicas, essentially all the data gets flushed, and then they have to resync um, the entire, rehydrate all the data from the newly elected primary. So what we wanted to do is make that whole failover process more effective, more efficient. Um, and we, re we rewrote that in an earlier version uh, of ElastiCache, and we, uh, we contributed um, a lot to that to the open source. So some of our engineers, um, you know, there's a, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's been bugs, there's been uh, various things that we've done ever since uh, 2.8, 2 and I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine this trend to change. So we're, we support the open source project, this is a trend that we're gonna continue, obviously, to support. Now, Redis comes in two different flavors. There's two different topologies. Uh, the first one is a vertically scaled environment. And what that means is you have one primary, all your, your entire key space, which is uh, the, the 16,384 hash slots, they live in that one key space. And so uh, what this means is um, uh, all your data can fit to the largest size of that node, and in this case would be a, 
an R4 uh, 16XL, which is 407 uh, gigabytes. And your replicas have the entire copy of all the data, right? Um, what, what we would provide you is a primary endpoint. Your applications would point to that uh, primary endpoint. You'd also have the uh, uh, replica endpoints. And if there was a failover, what would happen is we would take that primary endpoint and we'd propagate that on uh, a, a one of the replicas. So we do the DNS swap for you. Um, nothing has changed with that topology. We still support it. Um, but cluster mode enabled, there's a lot of new things, so we're gonna focus in this talk on cluster mode enabled. So with cluster mode enabled, what we're doing here is uh, it's basically a horizontally scaled environment. So you have uh, up to 15 shards. A shard is made up of a primary and zero to five replicas. And each one of these shards um, essentially uh, you know, owns a portion of that key space, right? So it's a hash slot range. And a default distribution would be to divide the, uh, the, the, the hash slots across the number of shards that you have. So that essentially is the difference. Um, the other thing with a cluster mode enable is we give you a configuration endpoint. And in your Redis cluster aware client, the way it works is it would communicate to, uh, through that configuration endpoint, it would get a map of all the topology in the nodes associated to your cluster and I'll know exactly which node and which shard to target for a specific key on a get set like operation. Now, there's other differences. Um, so we'll sort of uh, kind of recap a few other things between cluster mode enabled and disabled. From a failover standpoint, because there's no DNS involved, cluster mode enabled is much faster. So if you care about um, failover speed, um, Enabled makes a lot of sense, right? Because uh, a failover may take uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15, with the worst case scenario, 30 seconds. And remember, this is on, a, uh, on an individual um, shard. So imagine you have you know, three shards, and you had a failure on one of them. Only 33.3% uh, of your data is affected. And if you wanted to reduce that blast radius even further, um, all you would just do is add additional uh, shards. So uh, the failure risk is also a better option for you if you wanted to lower the impact of failures using uh, Redis. You would go with the, the enabled uh, version. The other difference here is with respect to performance. Because you have uh, the ability to have many shards, you have the ability to write to many primaries at the same time. Because again, uh, a shard has, is, uh, consists of a primary and its associated replicas. Uh, so from a writing and from a reading perspective, you have more nodes to uh, interact with. So its uh, performance is gonna be greater. The obvious difference here um, would also be storage. So because you have more nodes and your data is spread across many primaries, you can have six plus terabytes worth of data in a cluster mode enabled topology. So that's massive. Um, more connections. Uh, the one trade-off here is cost. So the cost may be uh, more, expe uh, more expensive because you have more nodes. However, when you, when you are architecting using cluster mode enabled, you're, you're selecting smaller size nodes versus you know, a larger node. Uh, but the cost is certainly more expensive with enabled. So that would be your trade-off. Let's take a deeper look at cluster mode enabled, just to make sure we're sort of all on the same page with how it works, you know, under the hood, that sort of thing. 
So I mentioned earlier, uh, Redis has uh, 16,384 hash slots. And again, these hash slots are divided by the number of shards that you have, and that would be the, uh, the equal distribution, although you have control on changing that. And a key essentially finds itself in a slot after doing a circ16 mo modulo function. And after it does that, it'll live in essentially a, a slot, and in the client that you're using, whether it's a Java client, .NET, Python, as long as it's uh, cluster aware, it will, uh, it will ping the cluster, um, issue a cluster slots command, and it'll get a, uh, get a map of, of the topology, the nodes, and also which node has, is associated to what hash slot range. So it knows where to direct the traffic. It also knows uh, which node is a primary, which nodes are replicas, things of that uh, nature. Now all clients are, are different, so you obviously want to look at the different characteristics of each client, um, but that's generally how the smart clients work. Now let's sort of visualize this. Um, imagine this is uh, your cluster. This is an example of the three shard cluster. Each shard here will be a different color. And the, the border, that gray border, is, uh, we'll, we'll kind of note as the, the primary. Now again, a, a cluster can be made up of 15 shards, and uh, a shard can have up to five replicas. So if you look closely here, uh, the replicas have the same hash slot range uh, of the primary. And this is true, obviously, for uh, all three shards. And what happens uh, in a failure scenario? So. Um, Imagine one of your primaries failed. The impact that you have is only to the writes. Uh, you can always read uh, during a failure, assuming you have a replica. Now, for 15 to 30 seconds, what's gonna happen here is we're gonna detect the failure, and then we're gonna immediately elect one of your replicas to be the new primary. As soon as that election happens, your client is made aware of that election, and I'll be able to start writing uh, to that newly elected, uh, to that newly elected primary. Now, if you wanted to reduce, again, as we mentioned earlier, that blast radius, you just add more shards, right? So if you had 10 shards, only 10% of your data would have been affected in a failure scenario like that. Now, what happens if you lost majority? This is another difference uh, uh, that we have with open source. Um, so with open source, if you lost the majority of primaries, you have a problem now with the election. And uh, your cluster is unable to elect a replica, a suitable replica, to be the new primary. This is something that we, uh, we added some enhancements around, and we're able to make an intelligent election here, and your cluster is re recovered. Again, this is nothing that you need to do. There's no intervention. This is something that we're managing for you. So the question here is, you know, all right, well, imagine you have a cluster of three shards, and you wanted to go to five. How do you do this? Um, there's an old way, and I'll just call it the old way for now, and then there's a, a way that I'm gonna introduce uh, shortly. So the old way would be, and this is only for cluster mode enabled, is to leverage backup room and store. And we'll talk through why this is not efficient um, as we're kind of building up the slide. So the way you would do it is you take a snapshot of this three shard cluster, and um, after you take that snapshot, there's a, an obvious uh, thing that you're noting here is that um, any new writes that are happening to your cluster are not captured in that, uh, that RPO or that, that, uh, that snapshot, right? So you're gonna have to mitigate that, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll come back to that. 
So after you take the snapshot, what you do is you copy that snapshot, you place it into your S3 bucket, then you create a new uh, cluster, and then you pass the RDB files that were associated to the three shard cluster that you had um, to the new cluster that you're creating. So you're hydrating this new cluster with the wh whatever shard count that you wanted. Uh, we'll assume five here. And then what we'll do is each shard, remember it has, um, you know, it's designated a certain hash range. It will discard whatever, uh, you know, keys or slots uh, don't belong to it. And so the slots would distribute across the five, the five shards. And then after that, after you've created that cluster, then what you're gonna do is you're gonna point your application to this newly elected cluster. There's a new endpoint. Um, there'll be some downtime, um, which is never fun. Um, and then you have this new cluster that you're working with, right? And so the, the, the things that you're gonna have to mitigate with this solution is uh, what, do you, what do you do with those writes that occurred after you took the snapshot? So what some people would have done is they'd maybe write to a queue or a kinesis or something like that. And then once that new cluster is up, they'll sort of hydrate those writes. Um, not, not the best solution, but a solution. Um, but there's a better solution, right? And this is what we're, uh, we're gonna review right now. And so that solution here is zero downtime online resharding. So we just uh, recent, re recently announced this, and uh, we wanted to you know, build this in a way that we knew our customers wanted, right? And we're gonna talk about the difference that we've done and the enhancements that we've done with this operation. It's a little bit different than how open source does this uh, as well. So let's kind of go back to that three shards scenario. Imagine you have three shards, um, and now all of a sudden you wanna do five. This is a very, very simple API. In fact, that's the CLI command for that API. What you do is you would pass the replication ID, that's like your cluster, uh, uh, name, um, you would pass a parameter which is uh, apply immediately, uh, basically if you want that operation occur, uh, start occurring. And then you would also pa pass the node count for the new shard, right? So in this case, five. And this API is also true for scaling down. So if you wanted to scale down, the only additional uh, value that you would pass is which nodes you want to get rid of. Now everything after that is completely we're managing, we're doing for you, right? So what's happening here is there's zero disruption to your ap application. You're still using Redis just like you were using Redis. We're doing the resharding and doing a uniform slot distribution across these new shards. And slot by slot, we're migrating these shards in a very reliable and robust way. And you don't have to worry about this, right? And so one of the differences here that we did is with open source, um, there's a key by key migration. And we wanted to change that because when you do key by key, there's a possibility where your, uh, where your slot will be split across multiple shards. And that problem um, uh, basically um, limits a, a few commands. For example, there's some Lua capabilities and multiple uh, MGATs and things of that nature where uh, you won't be able to use, right? So there's some limitations there. And then when a failure happens, it's harder to recover from, uh, from that sort of scenario. So we decided to you know, spend a little bit more time on this problem and we changed that algorithm to do slot by slot. Um, so we'll prevent the split slot uh, scenario. 
And also, we don't disrupt or change the, the behavior of your application. We're not limiting uh, the commands that you need to, to run on this. Now, the only, uh, the only con here is that there is a possible performance uh, impact, but there is no downtime, right? So that's just one thing I'd like to, to call out. Now, the same thing is true for scaling in, right? So you want to scale in, you have a cluster, um, and then all of a sudden you realize, you know what, I don't need all these additional shards. Uh, our memory consumption is uh, good enough, maybe it can support three, to scale in. And how do you do that in, a, in an automated way, right? So now we're revisiting where CloudWatch sort of pairs nicely with ElastiCache. So let's say, for example, you had a alarm set on memory. And now that alarm went off, right? So your memory is high. Um, what do you do? Right, so you can issue an SNS notification. That SNS notification, you're gonna basically uh, trigger a, a Lambda function, and that Lambda function is gonna parse the notification, and then based on that alarm, it's gonna do something. And in this case, we're gonna add some shards. And uh, you can automate this. So you can add the logic that makes sense to you to scale up and to scale down. Very similar to how auto-scaling groups uh, would work for EC2. But in this case, you're sort of building that workflow using uh, CloudWatch, SNS, and AWS Lambda. Now, the one thing I would advise if you're gonna do this is to account for some of the time that it would take to, for the operation to complete. So you might wanna be a little conservative with your metric uh, uh, associated to like memory or CPU or whatever you wanted to uh, react to. And again, uh, just like we, you know, we talked about, as soon as you kick off that function, you're basically uh, telling ElastiCache scale up, um, or scale out, rather, um, and then everything is back to normal, right? Now let's kind of look at this in another perspective. So imagine this is your application. Everything is healthy. And um, if you're a business owner, something good just happened. Now you have more customers. More customers are hitting your site and uh, you know, they wanna buy products. If you're an infrastructure or a developer, something bad just happened, right? Now you have heavy pressure, heavy load to your, uh, your database, your application. So what you would do, um, again, you know, just like what we talked about, you'd trigger um, an alarm, you'd scale up your, your EC2 instances, and very similarly, you can certainly have a conservative alarm to scale up your cluster. The added benefit here is that you're still sort of protecting your backend database. You're, you're consuming that pressure in that cache layer, and you're, you're leaving your backend sort of in the same state that it needs to be, it needs to be which is really cost-effective, because scaling your, your, your database is, is costly, or can be costly with licenses and things of that nature. And then the other thing is that when you do something like this, you know your cache can support much, much greater uh, operations per second. And again, the latency is much faster than a, than a backend database, so this is, this is ideal. So let's take a second here to take a look at uh, uh, Amazon ElastiCast security. We'll sort of review the basics and sort of build up from that point. So, you know, kind of starting from a clear uh, canvas here, uh, imagine you have a VPC few uh, three AZs that you're, you're working from. The first thing that you'll do with uh, Amazon ElastiCache is you'll define a cache subnet group. And this is a, 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 a basically a collection of uh, private subnets that you would uh, 
place your, your cluster in that really spans the AZs uh, that, you're, uh, that you want to host your cluster in. The second thing that you're going to do is you're going to define a, a security group, uh, which is very similar to a firewall that's going to have the, you know, the port and also the, uh, the uh, protocol and then the, uh, the uh, IP or the, uh, you know, the uh, security group that's going to uh, have access to your cluster. And then, um, then you're going to place your, your, your uh, you're going to create that replication group or your create your cluster and you're going to place it in there, right? So you're going to use that security group and the cache subnet group uh, as part of that, uh, uh, that replication group creation. Now, if you were to take a snapshot and you wanted there to be uh, some encryption at rest, we have that feature. That's a relatively new feature. Um, so your, your snapshots will be encrypted. And then if you wanted um, application access, you know, you'll build your application. There'll obviously be security groups that are sort of protecting your application. And then you'll enable traffic from your application security groups to your uh, uh, Elastic Cache security group, right? And at that point, um, now you have access to your Elastic Cache cluster. So this is a very secure environment. The only way you can have access to your, cache, uh, to your Elastic Cache cluster is if you uh, enable access. Now, what if you wanted to have encryption uh, between your application and your cluster? So encryption uh, in transit. So this is also relatively new. So we just uh, recently announced encryption in transit with Redis 3.2.6. And we also added um, Redis auth. You know, if, if you're, for some folks who want to use that token-based um, authentication against the cluster uh, using their applications, you also have that capability uh, as well. So to sort of recap here, uh, encryption is new, and this is both in transit at rest. There's nothing that you need to worry about with respect to keys and you know, issuance and renewal of those keys. We're taking care of all that for you. And then it's from a, from a HIPAA standpoint, if that's something that you care about, um, it's, uh, it's included in the AWS BAA. So it's a HIPAA eligible. Now we'll review some common usage patterns with ElastiCache. So this first slide is uh, just really a kind of a, uh, a slide to show different types of organizations uh, that use uh, ElastiCache. And really it covers all sorts of verticals. And as I mentioned earlier uh, today, uh, also all sorts of workloads. And those workloads really span um, from caching to, you know, to uh, sentiment analysis and streaming data, some various things. And, and usually what happens is an organization will start with caching. Maybe they'll do like database caching. And then they'll move to maybe uh, you know, object caching. Uh, maybe they'll go into API caching. They'll ca cache the, uh, response, uh, the, uh, the responses for API requests. Uh, maybe they'll start caching you know, Elasticsearch responses. And then they'll, they'll kind of grow into other use cases and then we'll start seeing uh, additional things. We also see some organizations use Redis as a standalone database. And uh, you know, this is certainly doable, especially if you can recreate that data. Uh, because again, you can take uh, snapshots, you also have HA um, that you can, uh, you can do. So a metadata store or something that you can create is certainly possible. Let's take a look at caching. Um, so, with caching, typically the way people think about this is you're, you're placing a cache in front of a data store, right, or a database. 
and you're caching the results that you would typically uh, get out of that database. But what, where it gets interesting is imagine you have um, correlated data or data that's, um, that spans multiple databases. So we'll just make up an example here. Imagine you had a, uh, a customer where maybe you're capturing clickstream data uh, for your particular customer, maybe it's in Dynamo. Maybe that specific customer, you have uh, transactional data like orders, uh, order history, things of that nature in your relational database. And maybe you also have, you know, product metadata um, in your uh, S3 object store. And uh, what you want to do is in addition to caching that backend data, you want to create like a cache hub, right? You want to create a central location that really is capturing the activity of that user. You can easily do this. And some people do this uh, with Redis. And what this does is it simplifies your, your, uh, your data access. It puts everything in one spot for you. That aggregation is very natural with respect to how you might want to use this for analytics or you know, various uh, use cases for your application. And the one thing that you'll need to do is obviously uh, make sure that you can trigger and keep that cache fresh. So whether it's through AWS Lambda or some other process that you might define, whenever you're updating that backend data store, just keep that cache as fresh as possible just so that aggregated view is as accurate as possible. Furthermore, with caching, um, we also see organizations, I mean, uh, taking caching, they're essentially caching everything, right? Including other NoSQL databases. And to some, this is sort of like, you know, like a, they think about this at first like an ANSI pattern. They're like, well, why am I caching in a, a, a Mongo database or Cassandra database? Well, you're doing it for the same reasons. You want to lower the latency, the data retrieval uh, speed. Uh, you want to increase the data retrieval speed from your backend data store. And you may also want to lower your cost because, again, what Redis allows you to do is support incredibly high request rates. Um, at, a, at a low cost because you're not paying for that throughput or the, those requests to Elasticache Redis. And there's various techniques uh, that you can do uh, to cache data, whether you want to serialize the objects that you get out of those, um, those uh, backend databases or whether you want to convert them into a hash map or something that makes sense for your applications. There's a variety of different things that you might want to do. It all really depends on what you want to, how, how your application uh, wants to use that data. Another interesting pattern that we, uh, we see a lot of organizations do, uh, because Redis is very fast and very rich with respect to data structures, and there's a lot of aggregate data structures like the hash map, the set, sorted set, linked lists, um, what they might want to do is, you know, as they're capturing fast-moving data, you know, say uh, uh, maybe we'll go back to sentiment analysis, uh, they're capturing tweets or, you know, things that are coming in very uh, fast, uh, maybe they're, they're using Kinesis Streams for this. Uh, what they want to do is they want to interpret, they want to kind of dive into that data, and they want to enrich it, and they want to see if maybe that user did something previously uh, on the, on the uh, system. So they'll take, they'll peel off uh, records from that uh, stream, and then they'll take the, maybe the user ID or something that they can correlate to the cache, and then they'll query the cache, and they'll see, all right, do I have activity for this user? If I do, let's go ahead and summarize this for information. Maybe we'll the data decorate it. Maybe we'll enrich this uh, data. And then after they create this aggregate view, 
uh, they'll store this information in a cleansed uh, stream. And then that cleansed stream now has a richer information, processed information, that they might have some other, you know, uh, sort of uh, um, uh, process, maybe additional analytics that they might do or might, might hydrate another uh, backend database uh, for that. Other things that you can do, we talked about PubSub. Um, you might want to, if you saw something interesting maybe in that stream, you might want to publish that information to subscribers and those subscribers are doing something with that data, maybe you have a dashboard or something else. You can certainly build that with, uh, with Redis. And as we're sort of talking about, you know, fast data, fast moving data, Kinesis streams, um, the sort of big data architectures is becoming more and more popular uh, with Redis. And uh, what, we, what we're seeing people do is that, you know, as they're processing information, they still want to have that data, you know, in their, in their big data lake. But what they also might want to do is they might want to augment that data platform that they're building and create this fast data layer, right? And this fast data layer is going to be for maybe, uh, you know, that transient information, the active data, and something that they can really pound on for a, for a low cost. Because, again, there's... Uh, no added cost for that throughput in the, the requests. So they might use a, a variety of different um, engines or products um, to, you know, process the information, whether it's Kafka, you know, Apache Storm, or a, a, a Spark. And then they'll use a connector to basically drop that data into uh, to Elasticash Redis. And then once it's there in those uh, data stores, um, they'll use a variety of different tools. Uh, it all depends on that workflow, um, and then they'll analyze that data both in the, the fast data store, uh, maybe they're also using, obviously, their uh, big data lake for historical, maybe aggregations and things of that nature. IoT, uh, we're seeing a lot of usage uh, with Redis with IoT. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a... Uh, this really depends on the use case, uh, but what a lot of times happens is an organization uh, it m might be building something and they don't know exactly at first, you know, what type of data they want to, uh, uh, you know, store, uh, you know, for historical reasons, or they want to capture all the sort of sensor informations uh, in the beginning and sort of, kind of uh, tailor it down to what they really need. And they're, they're thinking about this and they want to build a solution in the most cost-effective way that does not uh, hinder performance. So what they'll do is uh, they'll capture um, sensor information. Um, they may use the AWS IoT uh, service for this, which makes it incredibly easy. And then once uh, it's in the AWS IoT service, they'll trigger a, a rule from the, from the rules engine that might have a Lambda function. And then that Lambda function will essentially write data to Redis, right? And if this is, uh, you know, time series data, this is very easy to do because you can capture um, the data and use a, a sorted set. And in the score, which allows you to sort the data uh, based on that score, you can use a timestamp for that. Um, and as you're writing the data to that sorted set, you can also have the properties of that sensor in a hash map and wrap all that into, uh, you know, a transaction would make a lot of sense. And if you also wanted that data for historical reasons, uh, you wanted that raw data, also write that to S3 uh, via uh, Kinesis Streams. So that would be an approach that we see some customers uh, leveraging uh, with Elasticash Redis. 
Um, geospatial capability with Redis really um, was a game changer. Um, so we talked to a lot of organizations who build mobile applications, uh, whether it's a, a ride-sharing organization, whether it's a, uh, an organization that has a recommendation engine, maybe a restaurant engine or something of that nature. And what they'll do is, you know, as, you know, maybe you're walking, um, they'll, they'll take the user's information, that longitude, latitude uh, data, they'll pass it up, uh, you know, maybe through API Gateway, they'll hit a Lambda function, query Redis with that, uh, that uh, geo information, and then recommend points of interest. This is uh, incredibly easy to do with Redis, and again, Redis is very, very fast, so this uh, enriches that user experience uh, because your, your recommendations are happening at an incredibly fast uh, you know, performance. And the only thing that you would need to do here is just define a, uh, a workflow that's constantly keeping those points of interest uh, fresh into Redis, if it's not your, uh, your, your primary database here. So in this case, we're using DynamoDB as a primary database. We're using DynamoDB streams. We're tr every time we write, maybe it's a restaurant into DynamoDB, that information will go through DynamoDB streams, be triggered off of a Lambda function, which will write that data into Redis. So in this case, Redis, and, uh, Redis is really uh, um, complementing uh, DynamoDB. AdSec is another uh, use case that we see a lot with organizations using Redis. So kind of just to review the workflow here, um, so what you have is you have uh, you, uh, ad publishers who are essentially, um, you know, placing um, ad, ad slots um, for bids, right? And so they send this information, uh, whether it's clickstream information, user information with a particular, uh, uh, you know, ad location um, into this ad network. And then you have bidders who are essentially saying, well, do I want to bid on that and place my advertisement in that, in that, uh, in that uh, slot? And that logic that's involved there uh, needs to happen incredibly fast, right? That entire workflow needs to happen in less than 40 milliseconds. So the most critical part here is when the bidder receives the information about the ad, they want to they want to execute whatever logic that they have incredibly fast. So they need a really fast database. But what would be better is if the database provided capabilities to do really quick operations. So you know Redis has various things with sets where you could do intersection, join, unions, things things of that nature, with a variety of other uh, data structures. So they'll take advantage of some of those capabilities, do very very quick you know. Uh, operations with Redis, and then go ahead and bid or, or not bid uh, in this use case. Chat applications, we see a lot of this, especially with like gaming companies. So if you're a gamer, uh, maybe you're playing a game, um, and you see like maybe chat happening in a campaign, um, a lot of communication happening uh, within a, a group of players, that communication may be powered by Redis. Um, other times uh, I've spoken with customers who you know, you'll, you'll be on a website and then a chat application will just pop up. Uh, that application is powered by Redis um, using uh, PubSub capabilities. And then leaderboards. Uh, this is like a go-to solution uh, with gamers um, uh, because what, what, what you can do with a leaderboard, and kind of going back to the sorted set, 
is this gives you very, very easy ways to rank information and then retrieve information in various different uh, sort of uh, um, uh, different uh, amounts of users. So for example, I can say give me all the users with a specific rank or give me the reverse rank of the first top users, things of that nature, natural operations that would happen in a ranking engine, uh, which is a leaderboard, right? So you have that capability uh, with Redis. Rate limiting. Um, so we have organizations who, uh, within their API calls, maybe they, uh, you know, they're building a solution where they want certain organizations to purchase maybe different packages of how many times you can call a specific API, right? So this is sort of bundled in, in different packages, maybe a silver, gold, platinum uh, type of deal. And then what they'll do is in their, um, in their API that the, uh, the end user will consume, they'll make a call out to Redis, which is really, um, you know, there's a variety of different ways you can implement this, but essentially you're using counters, whether you're decrementing or incrementing a counter, and then just making sure that that customer didn't hit that limit. And if they did, you're just throttling it. And uh, again, they use Redis here uh, for speed, and they also use Redis here because uh, you don't pay for all those uh, requests. So it makes uh, a lot of sense to do something like that. All right, so let's uh, spend some time here and talk about best practices. So the first one that we're gonna view is uh, sizing, cluster sizing. Um, so you know, when, you, when you're building a cluster, uh, there's a few uh, things that you want to uh, take it, uh, to, to really consider. Uh, the first one is storage, right? So this is sort of uh, the default one. You'll, you'll wanna take a look at how much data you, uh, you, you actually need. And then you wanna, you wanna add 25% data. This is a data that you wanna reserve for Redis, for those background operations that we talked about. And by default, we'll reserve that for you. Um, so, uh, and then the next thing that you wanna do, and this is really option, optional, is you may wanna add a little buffer uh, for some growth, right? So that would be a healthy way to size your, your cluster. Now the second thing you wanna do is you wanna make sure, and you wanna review this with the developers if you're uh, in the operations, or if you're a developer, you wanna review this as well. You wanna make sure that proper um, usage of TTLs is being done. And, and the best way to do this is really understand the frequency of change of the underlying data. So review how frequently that data changes and make sure that whatever TTLs are being placed on that data reflects what the underlying uh, change makes, uh, does. We, talk about, we talked about scale up and out using uh, CloudWatch. So you, you may have a, a bunch of different alarms that are gonna be set to uh, proactively react to your cluster. And if you wanted a size for memory, uh, you're gonna select a, you know, an R-based instance. R4s are great, uh, they're memory optimized. But in addition to memory, uh, they support incredibly high uh, networking at, at a, you know, at starting at a, an R4 large, for example, has 10 gigabits of uh, network performance. So it's sort of uh, network and uh, memory optimized. The second thing you wanna do uh, is think about performance. So once you got sort of the storage out the way, you wanna uh, consider what type of operations are happening and have a game plan in terms of what you're gonna do when uh, one of those thresholds uh, kind of uh, is met. So the first thing, kind of obvious, uh, if, you're, 
if you're spiking on read IOPS um, and you need more read IOPS, you're going to add more replicas. Um, if you need more write IOPS, that means you need uh, more shards. You need more primaries that you can write to. Um, if you need more network I.O., if you're, uh, somehow you're being scaled on a, uh, you know, a, uh, a network, you'll just pick a network-based uh, instance. Um, in general, if you're loading uh, data, uh, use pipelining uh, as much as you can uh, for bulk reads, bulk writes. And then consider uh, the big O to, uh, complex, time complexity associated to the operations. Um, and this one is sort of a bigger topic, uh, but the point with this one is really understand, you know, how, what, what is that operation, what kind of impact does that operation have on that data structure? How many members does that operation, uh, that data structure have? And what you can do to sort of reduce that speed or the worst case scenario associated with that operation. And then finally, uh, the thing that you might want to do is think about, you know, the, uh, the different isolation, cluster isolations associated to your cluster. And what I mean by this is, you know, when you create a cluster, there's a variety of different parameters that you can define. One of them is like an eviction policy. And you, what you might select for a caching cluster may be very different than what you might select for a metadata store. And so, what you might want to do is have caching workloads in a particular cluster and maybe a different cluster for your queues, maybe another cluster for something else, your metadata store, so sort of group by purpose. And then the more granular you get here, uh, the cost is going to go up. Um, so you, you need to figure out what makes sense for your organization. The other thing um, that you'll always want to do is once you sort of have a, uh, an idea of what makes sense from a sizing perspective, you'll want to test this. Uh, it's very easy to test this, and what I actually do is, um, in my CloudFormation templates, I also build out an instance uh, that has uh, the Redis client in, uh, built into it. So it's very easy for me to test the performance um, before I hand it over to somebody, or before I start using it in a POC or a demo. So this is another way to sort of kind of stamp um, that you have a, a good idea that this is going to perform the way you want. Now, when you, uh, we, we talked a little bit about eviction policies, and we'll just kind of uh, talk a little bit further about this. Uh, when you create that cluster, um, if you're doing it for, uh, you know, uh, for your developers, uh, you'll really want to evaluate what this uh, cluster is being used for. And, uh, you know, what kind, how this data is being used more specifically. Uh, right, so the different eviction policies that exist, um, they're everything from, you know, an all keys LRU, which really uh, takes uh, any key, uh, least recently used uh, uh, key across your entire key space. If you have, for example, uh, a volatile uh, LRU, you're basically going to evict a key that has a, uh, you know, that has an expiration set, right, so a TTL set. And the difference between the two is, is big, right? Because what if you have data that does not have TTLs, and then you also have data that has TTLs, but the data that doesn't have TTLs, you never want to evict because it's metadata, right? So this would be a reason why you might use one versus the other. Um, and then so this is the kind, of the, the kind of logic that you might have. And then the same thing is true here for uh, the, the TTL, uh, volatile TTL, and so on and so forth. 
From a CloudWatch perspective, um, you'll, you'll always want to look at CPU uh, utilization. Um, make sure that uh, you know, you're, you're sort of monitoring um, how much processing is happening uh, on your cluster. Um, if you feel that you need more CPU uh, support, you might need more shards. Uh, from a swap usage, uh, you, you want to see that low, if not uh, zero, especially if memory is high. You never really want to be in swap in an in-memory uh, system. From cache misses to hits, you always want to have more cache hits than misses, right? So you might want to target like a 90 and up uh, ratio. Uh, that would be healthy. And so if you had all the things that we talked about, which was storage, performance, all those sort of things built out, but your developers aren't using the cluster uh, effectively, um, it's kind of pointless, right? So you always want to uh, sort of uh, look at the cache hit to, to miss ratio. Evictions, um, you never want to see evictions. Even though we just kind of talked about which one you would select, um, really an eviction is happening when you're overloading the cluster, right? So the cluster is at least being nice to you and saying, before I get rid of a key, you know, tell me what algorithm you want me to evict, um, and it's, that's, that's where you select those max memory policies. But ideally, you don't, you don't ever want to hit that scenario unless you have a specific use case, like you're, you're using a Russian, Russian doll caching, or you define it as an LRU cache or something uh, of that nature. From a connection standpoint, you always want to see this as stable. Uh, you always want to validate that your developers are using connection pooling, just like they would use with a database. And as we mentioned earlier, set alarms uh, wherever you can. Um, keep in mind from a client's perspective, a, con a connection uh, perspective, um, you can have up to 65,000 per node, whether it's a primary or a replica. Uh, there's parameters here where you can kill idle connections, uh, whether you use a timeout or a TCP keep alive. So you want to take a look at that and figure out what value makes sense for your organization. I mentioned here for reserve memory, we uh, by default will reserve 25% of reserve memory. Um, so that would be a rec recommendation there. And then setting the max memory policy as we uh, mentioned earlier. Let's kind of take a, a quick look here at um, uh, caching tips. So the first tip, um, as we mentioned earlier, understand the frequency of change of the underlying data. And what I always do is I always try to be a conservative with this, right? Um, so the first question you want to ask yourself is what's the impact if, if you provide stale data to the end user? And if the impact is high, then be conservative. If there's very little impact, then you know, use your best judgment here and work with your, uh, your database administrators and your business owners to understand what, what value makes sense uh, to place. Um, as we mentioned, set the appropriate TTLs that match that frequency. Choose the proper eviction uh, policies that align to the requirements. Isolate for purpose, uh, which we, uh, we, we discussed. Maintain the cache fresh freshness through write-throughs. So uh, there's two main patterns uh, when you're dealing with you know, a cache. So in this case, this is a kind of a cache aside, but it's just sort of on the side of your your, your architecture, and what your application is doing is you're either uh, lazy loading, you're checking your cache for a value. If it's not there, you're querying your backend database, you're grabbing the, the value from your backend database, and you're hydrating your cache uh, with it, with a TTL. Um, so that way, the next request that comes in, um, the data is there. 
Um, the other approach is proactive, is this is where whatever process you have that's updating your backend database, you're also writing that data uh, to the cache. Uh, maybe you're, um, you're applying a conservative TTL, so you know, if that data is not needed, that's okay, it's gonna expire. Um, but if it's needed, you know, the request comes in, then you increase the likelihood that it's gonna be there. And you're uh, maintaining a, a better user experience because that data is always you know, being found uh, consistently in, in the cache. And so you're using both lazy loading and that write through pattern uh, with your cache. We talked about how to you know, size your cluster, so you always wanna do that. These are tenants uh, to have a successful cluster. Uh, monitor the hit and miss ratio. Use the failover API. I highly, highly recommend this. So we expose an API here that allows you to kill primaries. Um, so do this. Make sure the applications are built in a way that can withstand failures, and the way you do that is by testing the failover API. And that's all we have today. Um, so thank you guys for your time. I hope you learned something new with Elasticash. Um, thank you.